Well, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And before we read, I just want to say thank you to Dr. Kreider and the rest of the team for their willingness to lead us in worship Sunday after Sunday. What an important task that is. Ephesians 4, and this morning we're looking at verse 25. And that's it. One verse. Verse 25, it says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Pray with me. Father, we ask for your guidance this morning. We cannot understand the word apart from your spirit. So, Father, we pray that it will be your spirit who will teach us this morning. Apply the truth to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. That's Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. I want to highlight two aspects of those Verses first, and just as a general remark, it is not very common anymore for people to think of God as someone who actually is capable of hating anything anymore. It is as though the modern concept of the love of God has been elevated to such a degree that any talk on God's hatred of anything has become become almost extinct in evangelical parlance. And yet it is precisely God's loving nature, the very thing that opposes everything that is evil and wicked. God does hate whatever opposes his holy, loving, and perfect character. Amen? Amen. Second, and more specific to our considerations for this morning... Seven things are mentioned that God hates. One, however, one is given double prominence. How interesting it is to hear and know that in some of the most explicit, direct, and definitive verses in all the scripture that speak about particular vices that God hates, one is mentioned twice. A lying tongue and a lying witness. Two different instances of the same vice. Now, I guess it could be argued that many other vices could have been included on this list. There are many things in this fallen world that we could say God hates. Yet only one is given prominence twice. Lying. Lying. God hates lying. 
So much so, in fact, that in Psalm chapter 5, verse 6, we read about God that you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22, we read these very strong words. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. We should not be surprised then that in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 8, when John speaks of those whose portion will be in the lake of fire and sulfur, which is the second death, he includes the following people. Pay attention. The cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all Liars, all liars, lying and falsehood are punishable by eternal death in the lake of fire, which leads me to this conclusion. Are you ready? It simply does not matter what your opinion or my opinion might be about lying and whether you think that there are instances in life when lying is acceptable. Regardless of your particular stance on this specific ethical question, one thing is undeniable and crystal clear. Lying and falsehood are an abomination to God and he will destroy liars and deceivers in hell. Undebatable. Therefore, as the only logical possibility, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.25, That having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Lying is then one of those deceitful desires of which Paul spoke in verse 22 of chapter 4. Falsehood belongs to our former manner of life, which is corrupt. And one of the, the biggest One of the the clearest manifestations of the corruption of humanity is precisely its ability to lie. Now, before we get into the details of verse 25, notice with me something interesting that we find in verses 25 through 32. This is a list of vices and virtues that we must put on and put on, put off and put on respectively in our lives. And for each vice that we must destroy, Paul provides a virtue that we must practice. So for instance, as you stop lying, you start telling the truth. As you stop stealing, you start working honestly for the purpose of sharing. As you stop tearing people down with your words, you start building them up with your words, etc., etc. We see that pattern in this particular section. Even when there are no explicit mentions of virtues that follow advice, we can easily deduce one from the context itself. So for instance, in verse 30, it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. What is the virtue? Well, the virtue would be what we find in chapter 5, verse 18. But be filled with the Spirit of God. But notice this also. All these vices and virtues that we find in this section have the ability to either destroy or sustain your relationships. All of them. 
All of them have that power. Falsehood and truthfulness will either destroy or sustain your relationships. Anger will either destroy or sustain your relationships if it is the right kind of anger for an appropriate amount of time. We'll see that next Sunday. Stealing can also break a relationship, while honesty accompanied by generosity will sustain a relationship, and you can do that with all of them. So before we look at each vice and virtue on their own, consider the following truth, okay? You must keep this in mind. Every imperative we are called to obey has to do with our ability and willingness to consider ourselves members of a body as opposed to individual isolated selves. One of the most critical elements of obedience and holiness in the Christian life is the realization that you belong to something greater than your own individual self. That your world is actually Christ's world and that your individual calling is meant for the benefit of the whole. So if you are not fully convinced of that particular truth, the vices will have a tendency to prevail in your life. It is like this. Let me give you just a basic example. Uh, If you are a father and a husband, that knowledge and that reality should naturally lead you to make an effort to be as healthy as you possibly can. Why? Because you know that your eating habits, your exercise habits can eventually affect your ability to relate to your own family. My wife has told me many times. (laughs) Am I putting you on the spot? I didn't mean to do that. Should have thought about that, huh? But she has told me many times, I want you to be healthy. I want you to eat right. (laughs) I want you to exercise because we want to enjoy you for a long time. And she has a point. Belonging to a family should have an effect on your individual decisions and your practices and your choices because you are seeking the benefit of those under your direct care and responsibility. Well, likewise, belonging to the body of Christ has a similar effect. The vices and the virtues that we're called to put off and on are there for the sake of the entire body and not just you, not just me. And this is the truth that permeates all the commands in the Bible. Now, with that in the back of our mind, let's look at verse 25. I think we're ready now. We have three clear, straightforward sections in verse 25. A general prohibition, a positive command, and a unique reasoning. Let's look at the first, a general prohibition. Therefore, having put away falsehood. Let me ask you a question. Have we put away falsehood? Well, that is a trick question. That is a trick question. In an indicative sense, by virtue of our union with Christ, we have put away falsehood. In an imperative sense, by virtue of the indwelling of the spirit of God, we need to put away falsehood. So have we put away falsehood? Yes, we have. And no, we haven't. We could say it this way. Since we have put away falsehood and lying in Christ, we need to keep putting away falsehood by the spirit. Now, the obvious question at this point is as as follows. What is falsehood? What is lying? I will take 
falsehood and lying to mean the same thing. I'm going to use them interchangeably this time, although there can be some distinctions among them, but I will use them interchangeably for the sake of our discussion this morning. The issue of falsehood and lying is, of course, an issue of ethics. Ethics. What is ethics? Well, ethics is the study of right and wrong, right and wrong. But for us Christians, ethics is more than just that. I want to quote here from a theologian and slash philosopher. His name is John Frame. This is how he defines ethics. Ethics is theology. Ethics is theology viewed as a means of determining which persons, acts, and attitudes receive God's blessing and which do not. And which do not. So in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 and following, everything we read afterwards, we are essentially asking and answering that question. Which persons, acts, and attitudes receive God's blessing and which do not. So we are entering into the world of ethics, but we must always come from a well-grounded biblical framework. And here is why we need to be biblical about this. We need to realize that the world, the non-believing world has sought to provide answers to ethical questions. Even atheists are seeking to provide answers to ethical questions. And they have sought to speak with authority. And fortunately, we must be clear that the world, in its efforts to provide ethical parameters for human conduct, they have also removed God from the picture. And this inevitably leads to contradictions and confusion. So let me give you three specific examples of three of the major theories in ethics that have come from the world. First, there is something known as the deontological theory of ethics. How many of you have heard that theory before? One. Okay. We have a lot to talk about. Deontological theory of ethics. What is this theory? Well, this theory suggests that lying or anything that is a vice that is bad in the world should not be practiced because there is a transcendental norm, a standard, a universal standard that applies to all people. For instance, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What is that? According to this theory, that is a transcendental norm, it is a rule that naturally imposes itself on everyone in the same way. What is the problem with this theory? Well, there's a basic question that we need to ask. Where does the transcendental rule come from? Where does it come from, right? If there is no God, where do we turn to? And who is to say that that transcendental rule is true? Now, there's a second theory of ethics that has come from the world and is known as the teleological theory of ethics. Not theological, but teleological. It comes from the Greek word telos, which means purpose or goal. What does this theory say? This theory says that what matters in the world, in the world of ethics and human conduct, what matters is that which produces the greatest amount of happiness in the world or the greatest amount of pleasure 
which can be both individual or corporate happiness. What matters is that we never do anything that will diminish your or my ability to be happy and to experience pleasure. What do you think about that one? Do you like that one? Don't raise your hand. We must maximize happiness and minimize unhappiness. This is also known as the utilitarian ethics. The value of our actions is determined by the amount of happiness or pleasure that it produces. In this theory, we should never be bound to absolute norms or rules as in the deontological theory. What is the problem here? Do you see any problems? I think I see a few problems. What if lying can lead to my happiness, right? And how do you know, and how do you go about determining the amount of happiness or pleasure that you should enjoy at the expense of someone else? Now, there's a third and final theory that I want to mention, and this is known as the existential theory of ethics, existential theory of ethics. What is emphasized in this theory? The following. This theory emphasizes the inwardness or the subjective nature of ethics. You know what that means, right? Basically, we must define our own happiness. We define it by ourselves. In, in essence, we must do what Proverbs 3 says not to do. We must follow our heart. Within this theory, lying or falsehood is anything that disrupts your pursuit of happiness as defined by you. Pretty convenient, right? In other words, the worst thing you could do is to lie to yourself by accepting absolute norms or rules that go contrary to your inward desires. This is a very popular view of ethics and even of lying. Now, this week I did something that I do not recommend that you do, but I watched several minutes of different TED Talks. Have you heard of the TED Talks? T-E-D Talks? All of which were on the issue of truth and lying. Don't do that. It's not good. <laughs> but if I had to categorize what the majority opinion was, I would say that most of them agreed with the existential theory of ethics. And this is how most of them define lying. Are you ready? Lying is submitting yourself to other people's expectations or accepted cultural norms, while truth is a matter of inward desires being lived out. This is nothing new. This has been around for a long time, but I want to show you an example. I was reading this week a very influential book titled The Age of Reason. Have you heard of that book? The Age of Reason by Thomas Paine. It was published in 1794. Listen to an excerpt from this book. This is what he said, and I quote, All national institutions of churches, whether Jewish, Christian, or Turkish, appear to me no other than human inventions set up to terrify and enslave mankind and monopolize power and profit. I do not mean by this declaration to condemn those who believe otherwise. They have the same right to their belief as I have to mine. Listen to this. But it is necessary to the happiness of man 
that he be mentally faithful or truthful to himself. Faithful means truthful. Infidelity or untruthfulness does, does not consist in believing or disbelieving. It consists in professing to believe what he does not believe. And then he says this, it is impossible to calculate the moral mischief. If I may say so express it, that mental lying has produced in society End quote, what is truth and what is lying? Well, truth is that which makes you happy while lying is that which keeps you confined to something, you, something you don't really believe in the existential theory of ethics seems to be dominant. All these theories, however, put together, they have two things in common. Let me tell you what they are. Number one, all these theories, they are looking for a universal norm, a unified purpose, and an inward reality. They're all looking for the same thing. A universal norm, a unified purpose, and an inward reality. Do you see where I'm going with this? Some of you do. Some of you don't. Now, the second thing that they have in common is this. These theories are doomed to fail for the simple reason that they have removed God as the starting point, the sustaining point, and the finishing point of everything. So what do we have to offer as Christians? We have three wonderful things to offer. What do we say to the deontological theory. Here's what we say. We have a universal norm. We have a universal standard. It's called the word of God. What do we say to the teleological theory? We have a unified purpose. It's called love your neighbor as yourself. And what do we say to the existential theory of ethics? We have an inward reality. It's called God's law written in our hearts. You see what we have? Well, the world has been busy asking these questions and seeking to provide answers. God in his word has given us everything. It's all there. So how do we define falsehood? What is lying? Well, lying and falsehood includes all those elements. Here's lying. Lying is to deny the absolute and universal standard of God by corrupting it in order to deceive my neighbor, thus wounding my conscience, which is informed and conformed by God's law written in my heart. You see, lying involves all those elements that the world is looking for. When you lie in whatever form, you are going against three specific realities. You are going against an absolute norm given by God. You are going against your neighbor, whom you're supposed to love. And you are going against your conscience, which you're supposed to protect. Lying is to go against God, neighbor, and self. Therefore, every lie amounts to damage, even the little ones, the little lies. That's why lying is a big deal. That's why lying is a big deal. And if you think lying is okay in certain situations, 
and you have convinced yourself of it, I hope you did not reach that conclusion without shedding some tears and going through some sleepless nights. Here's the bottom line. You and I must put away everything that is false in our lives because God hates it. You want to know the hard truth? You want to hear something really, really hard? Here it is. You and I are never more like Satan than when we lie. In John chapter 8, verse 44, we read that Satan is the father of lies, and when he lies, he does so out of his own character because that's who he is. So here's where I stand on this issue. Lying is wrong at all times and in all circumstances. Every time you lie, you're doing great harm to yourself and to others. But listen, I I know what some of you are thinking. I know what some of you are thinking. What about the Hebrew midwives in Exodus? Didn't they lie? What about Rahab? Didn't she lie? Didn't they lie? And were they not even commended for it? Yes. But let's be very careful here, my friends. Those are specific stories for a specific time in history and with a very specific purpose. They are not meant, be careful here, they're not meant to be normative in the sense that if you ever find yourself in a similar circumstance, you must lie. Neither are they meant to endorse that which God hates. Listen carefully. There is a big difference between a principle that you can draw from a biblical story that needs to be carefully applied and qualified and a direct, explicit biblical command that expects your obedience, such as the one we read in Ephesians 4.25, put away falsehood. We've got to be careful here. Even John Frame, the man that I quoted, he says, he argues that it is okay to lie occasionally when it benefits the majority. But we don't do that normally. You see, Elijah, for example, he mocked the prophets of Baal. And he mocked their God. Are we going to take that story and turn it into an evangelistic principle and apply it when witnessing to Muslims? Of course, we don't do that. We don't go to Muslim communities and mock them. And we say, well, Elijah did it. We don't do that. What is the command? What is clear? The clear command is this. We must put away falsehood and lying from our lives. That's the end of the story. But let me try to be a little more specific here. The falsehood of Ephesians 4.25 that we must put away is a general falsehood that affects every other falsehood in our lives. Now, let me try to expand on that. The word that Paul uses in the original for falsehood is the Greek word pseudo. P-S-E-U-D-O. Pseudo or pseudo. I don't know how to say it. Pseudo. And the word literally means false, false. So for instance, a a pseudonym, pseudonym is a false name. This week I read about a medical condition called the pseudotumor cerebri. Those of you who know Latin, I know what what that means, right? I don't, so I had to look it up. (laughs) Pseudotumor cerebri, which means false brain tumor. 
It is called that because the symptoms are like having a tumor, but in reality, there's no tumor there. That's the word that Paul uses for falsehood. It's pseudo. And it is a big, it is a, it is a big concept. In fact, I would argue is the word that explains everything that is wrong with the world. Paul uses the same word in Romans chapter one, verse 25 in one of the most sobering statements ever made about humanity. As Paul describes the world in all his sinfulness, here is his bottom line. Are you ready? The world is in the condition that it is because they exchange the truth about God for a what? Lie. What is the word? Pseudo. And worshipped and served the creature rather than their creator. In other words, they exchanged the true God for a false one. This, my friends, is the heart of humanity's fallen nature. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.25 that this big lie, this big pseudo must be put away. We are people who have exchanged the lie for the truth. And therefore, every other lie must be put away as well. We are people of the truth because we know the true God and he is our father through Jesus Christ. That changes everything. So, Let me give you some basic advice here. How do we put away falsehood and lying in our lives? How do we do it? Just two words of advice. First, very simple. There is nothing more powerful to put away falsehood and lying in your life or from your life than a clear conscience. There's nothing more powerful. Live in such a way that you can conduct yourself in life with a clear conscience. You know why? We normally lie when we have something to hide. The first and most effective way to put death, to put lying to death in our lives is by by not allowing ourselves to engage in activities or even patterns that will tempt us to lie in order to cover up our faults. And here's a second piece of advice. Very important. Remember that Christ is our justification. Therefore, we don't have to lie in order to be accepted by others or by God. In the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, our sins are covered, crucified, and forgiven. When you engage in lying, you are denying Christ's sufficiency to justify you through his dying. There you go, so you can remember it. All end in ing. <laughs> when you engage in lying, it is true, you are denying Christ's sufficiency to justify you through his dying. That's the only reason why we lie. We forget about the power of Christ to justify our sins. And therefore we think we need to cover up when you have, your sins have been atoned for already. Don't deny the gospel of Jesus Christ by engaging in lies. Number two, there is also a positive command, a positive command. Paul says, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. I want you to notice with me first, a very important aspect. And it is this individual responsibility. Let each one of you. Why is this so important? Well, telling truth or truth telling matters for the life of the church, because truth is the only virtue that can keep trust and unity alive. 
where truth is gone, trust and unity are easily broken. Easily, easily broken. But I want to show you something deeper about this particular command. I want you to turn your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah chapter 8. In case you have forgotten where the book of Zechariah is, is the second to last book in the Old Testament. Not that I am assuming you forgot. I know some of you got up this morning and you did your devotional in the book of Zechariah. But in case you forgot, it is the second to last book in the Old Testament. Some of you are thinking, I'm so grateful he said that. I was sweating bullets. I'm trying to find it. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 14 through 19. You need to know that the words that Paul said in Ephesians 4.25 are a quote from the passage we are about to read. It is an Old Testament quote. Listen to what it says, beginning in verse 14. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, So again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem into the house of Judah. Fear not. Verse 16. These are the truths. I'm sorry. These are the things that you shall do. First thing, speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Verse 18. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to your house, to the house of Judah, seasons of joy and gladness, and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. This is an amazing truth of biblical theology. Here we see an example of how the Old and the New Testaments are bound by God's faithfulness to bring about his plan in and through his people. As God spoke to those who were coming back from exile, the Jewish remnant, he told them that truthfulness in speech would be their chief characteristic. In fact, in verse three of the same chapter, the same book, Jerusalem is called the faithful city or more accurately still the city of truth, the city of truth, brothers and sisters. This is a description of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the apostle Paul himself who in first Timothy chapter three, verse 15 referred to the church as nothing other than a pillar and buttress of what? Wow, silence. A pillar and buttress of the truth. Brothers and sisters, we are the city of truth that was prophesied in the book of Zechariah. Therefore, we, the New Testament church, the new covenant church, we are the fulfillment of these words. This is how Paul understood it. We are the ones who, by the power of God within us, we are able to speak the truth 
And we hate false oaths and we love truth and peace. We are the new men. We are the new creation. The old self has been crucified. We are the new humanity marked by truth. So what does the word neighbor mean? Well, in this particular context, and in Ephesians 4.25, the word neighbor actually doesn't mean everyone around you, but it has a more specific meaning. It's talking about your brothers and sisters in Christ. Does that mean we don't have to speak the truth with our neighbor everywhere else? Of course not. But it does mean that even if the world goes on lying, the church must be known for speaking the truth. This is the place. This is the place where we can trust one another. And I can take your yes to be yes and your no to be no. So what is implied in all of this? What does it mean to speak the truth to one another? Well, I can tell you this much. Speaking the truth with other believers within the context of the church is more than just speaking statements that are true. This is more than simply speaking honestly and not lying about what you do, although that is certainly included. But here's why I can say this. Consider this. If the lie, the falsehood that we must put away is a reference to the big lie that God is not God, as we saw from Romans chapter 1, verse 25, then the truth is also a reference to the big truth that we are saved in and through Jesus Christ. It was the Lord Jesus himself who said this in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Therefore, listen to this. To speak the truth with our neighbor is to speak in a manner consistent with the new reality that the gospel has brought about in our lives. And you know what? This takes us all the way back to Ephesians 4, verse 1. Walk in a manner worthy of the call with which you have been called. Let me be just briefly, very, very practical here as much as I can. Let me give you three insights. First, speaking the truth with our neighbor implies a willingness to confront behavior that opposes gospel truth because truth fights sin. This is very practical. Second, Speaking the truth with my neighbor implies willingness to accept correction because truth produces humility. And third, speaking the truth with our neighbor implies confessing our wrongs because truth leads to reconciliation. Let me finish with, by giving you a unique reasoning. Why does Paul say that we need to speak the truth to one another? Here's his reasoning. For we are members one of another. With this, I will finish. We are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are one with Christ. And since we are in Christ, we live within the very sphere of truth. For Jesus is the truth. Truth controls us. Truth guides us. Truth determines our behavior and truth informs our relationships. We are in the truth. This is our one common denominator, truth. And the purpose of the Christian life is summed up in the words of our Lord who prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is 
truth, that is the essence of the Christian life, is to be sanctified in the truth. Sanctify them. Who is them? All of us who profess faith in Christ. We become holy as we behold the truth, as we learn the truth, as we speak the truth, and as we are trained by the truth. Do you realize that Christianity is, in essence, a lifelong commitment to being trained by the truth? That's what the Christian life is. It's a lifelong commitment to being trained by the truth. What does that mean? Let me leave you with an example. Uh, This week, I had a very timely conversation with a man who knows a lot about flying airplanes. And it was an interesting conversation. He explained to me that one of the most difficult aspects of becoming a pilot, and Isaac was there, he can verify. One of the most difficult aspects of becoming a pilot is learning to fly by instruments. The instruments on an airplane are there to guide the pilot when he can't go anymore by his own senses, in particular, his vision system and his vestibular system, which is the inner ear. In a real sense, the instruments in the airplane become his eyes and the instruments must rule his inner ear. In other words, the pilot's sense of orientation, which includes his eyes, his hearing, his inner ear, his muscles and his tendons, all of it, All of it must be trained to trust the instruments. The challenge, of course, of flying by instruments is that the pilot's total sense of orientation will be screaming against the instruments. He doesn't want to believe the instruments when he's flying by instruments. Why? Because he will feel disoriented. In particular, the inner ear will play tricks on him. And he will be tempted not to trust the instruments and to correct the plane so that it will feel right. This is called spatial disorientation in which the pilot's sense of uh, orientation will misrepresent his actual position in space relative to earth. The problem is that if you fail to trust the instruments and you go with what your inner ear is telling you, it will be disaster. Why am I telling you all this? Well, it's very simple. The instruments are to the pilot what biblical truth is to the Christian. We must train ourselves to trust the truth, submit to the truth, walk by the truth, and think according to the truth, even when everything within you is telling you the opposite. This is why the psalmist said, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Therefore, listen to this. If you profess to be a Christian and you belong to the church of Jesus Christ, then you are saying this. I want to live my life according to the truth. That's what you're saying if you say you're a Christian. I want to live my life according to the truth. This means then, listen to this, that when a brother or a sister in Christ speaks the truth into your life in order to confront sin in your life, you must submit your reactionary sense of pride to the truth of God's word and realize that your brother and sister is seeking your good. You see how that works? You're flying by instruments, not by your inner ear or your vision. 
You must train your prideful reaction to be subject to the truth. If you don't, it will be a disaster. This is what it means to be sanctified in and speak the truth. So what is the conclusion? Well, having put away, away falsehood, let each one of us speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Let me just finish by speaking to those of you who might be in this room who are non-believers. Maybe you're watching via live stream or you're sitting here and you're questioning why we do what we do. Well, let me just throw a, a very simple question to you. Have you ever lied? Have you ever lied? Have you ever used your words to deceive? Here's the, here's the thing. If, if the answer is yes, you must know what the Bible says. The Bible says that all liars will be thrown in the lake of fire. So let me ask you this. If you are an unbeliever this morning, you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this. What are you going to do when you stand before the presence of a God who hates lies? How are you going to stand before his presence? Let me ask you what God, well, let me say what God did for you. This is what God did for us. He sent his own son into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what the Lord Jesus Christ did? He lived the life that you could not live. He never spoke a lie. Never once, never once. And then he did the unthinkable. He went to the cross. You know who put him there? It was not the Romans. It was not the Jewish people. It was God himself, the father. He was pleased to crush his own son. Why did he do that? Because he treated his own holy son as though he spoke your lies. Well, he never did. So here's the question. Here's what the Bible says for you to do. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Why? Because the wrath of God that you deserve was poured out on his own son, the Lord Jesus. And the Bible says that if you repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. So the, the ultimate question for your life, my friend, is what will you do with Christ? Is the most important thing about you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the instruction of your word. I pray that you will use it to encourage, to convict uh, to lead us to further repentance and trust in Christ. And I pray for those who are walking in self-deception this morning. Father, bring them to the truth and help us to continue to be sanctified in your truth. We thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus, your son. Amen.